Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Wednesday, August 11th. I'm Andrea Linares. These are today's headlines. The battle over masks in schools reaching a fever pitch in some states. A major city in Texas filing a restraining order against the state's governor, while in Florida, a growing number of school districts defying Governor Ron DeSantis. On Capitol Hill, Senate Democrats moving ahead with a $3.5 trillion budget resolution that could have a major impact on immigration here in the United States. And from Italy to Peru to right here in the U.S., massive wildfires burning across the planet, even as California's Dixie Fire grows to nearly half a million acres. The latest on the crisis for residents there today on U News. We begin with the latest on the pandemic here in the U.S. The state of Florida now accepting ventilators from the federal government to help with the massive surge in cases there. Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama and Arkansas all reporting hospitalizations at more than double the national rate. Lorraine Gassides has more on the situation in the South. The Delta variant not loosening its grip on the South. In Louisiana, health officials sending residents this message. There's been a 430% increase in statewide hospitalizations. Every one of those statistics should scare the hell out of you. In Texas, after banning mask mandates across the state, Governor Greg Abbott is now asking hospitals to stop non-emergency surgeries to make room for COVID patients. School districts and government closest to the people should make decisions on how best to keep students and others safe. I'll do all that I can to protect the public health and the people of Dallas County. In the Dallas area, there are only two pediatric ICU beds left. These are not just for COVID, car wrecks and anything else. If your child needs ICU and a ventilator in a 19 county area, we have two. This as Florida and the federal government continue feuding over the state's response to its surge in cases. I would note what is publicly available and knowable is that the American Rescue Plan funds that were distributed to Florida to provide assistance to schools have not yet been distributed from the state level. So the question is, why not? Uh, the governor apparently unaware his state has recently gotten ventilators from the national stockpile. I did not know about that, so I've not heard about that, so I have to check to see whether that's true or not. Um, we have, I mean, I, I would honestly doubt that that's true, but I'll look because we have a lot of stuff that we stockpiled over the last year and a half uh, through the Department of Emergency Management. I've not had any requests across my desk. I've not been notified of that. But According to data published by the Department of Health and Human Services, Florida has broken daily records of hospitalizations for the past 10 days. And 48% of the state's ICU beds are occupied by COVID patients. Meanwhile, as Moderna and Pfizer work to make vaccines available for kids 5 to 11 years old, a new poll showing only 41% of parents with kids already eligible for the shot have gotten them vaccinated. The majority saying not enough is known on the long-term effects of the shots. 
And as the U.S. battles vaccine hesitancy, there are now 175 health officials that are requesting in a letter to President Biden to um, upgrade the manufacturing of COVID-19 vaccines to respond to the global demand. They're saying there's outbreaks in Asia, Latin America that are affecting the global logistics and that uh, these vaccines would greatly help in getting the world back on track. This is all the information we have right now. Andrea, back to you. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report. Meanwhile, there are even more developments in both Florida and Texas. In Florida, Leon County Schools Superintendent Rocky Hanna said Tuesday that children from pre-kindergarten through eighth grade will be required to wear masks when classes resume in the state's capital of Tallahassee today. That order defying Governor Ron DeSantis' attempts to block schools from imposing such a mandate. The governor's office responded by saying the state's Board of Education could move to withhold salaries from the superintendent or school board members. For parents who want to opt their children out of the mask requirement due to health concerns, they will need to submit a mask opt-out form. Several other Florida counties, including Broward, Duval, Hillsborough, Orange, and Palm Beach, are also defying DeSantis's order. And in Texas, a district judge in Bexar County yesterday granted a temporary restraining order against the state of Texas and its governor, Greg Abbott. That restraining order will now allow the city of San Antonio and the surrounding Bexar County to issue mask mandates in its schools. And joining us now to talk about some of the difficult choices facing parents as the school year approaches is Dr. Elon Shapiro. He's the medical director of health education and wellness at AltaMed. Welcome to you News, Dr. Shapiro. Andre, it's always a pleasure to be with you. We're seeing surging COVID numbers around the country and children increasingly vulnerable to the Delta variant. What should parents be considering in their calculations about whether it's safe to send their kids back to school, especially for the unvaccinated students, those 12 and under, and perhaps even those that are over 12, but have chosen not to get the vaccine? The first thing is everything starts at home. We need to make sure that anybody at home uh, actually is vaccinated. That way we are protecting our kids from home. The second thing that we can do is actually explain to the kids how to use the masks. Uh, if we expect them suddenly, if they go back to school and they, they need to wear the mask, they will be a little bit uncomfortable. But if we start at home and they play with it and they get used to it, that will give them a lot of confidence. That way they can use it at school and protect themselves. The other two things is kids actually learn from example, if parents actually using the mask, you know, like a, as, as a hat or as a cheek uh, protector, kids will do the same. It's very important to make sure that we're putting it on the nose and mouth and, you know, making sure that it's completely covered. And that examples are extremely important when they are alone at school. Some great advice there. Now, what about those parents sending kids perhaps to daycare facilities where kids under the age of two are not only unvaccinated, but are often unable to keep a mask on, just like what you just explained? What would you tell them, those parents, what should they look out for? 
familia, it's extremely important right now that uh, we follow the guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics. You know, anybody above two years of age, they can actually wear safely a mask. And of course, you know, if they're tiny little kiddos, uh, we need to make sure that we're having a conversation with the people at daycare. That way we know what they are doing for hygiene. You know, uh, are they having any protocols if someone has an outbreak? What's the social distancing uh, policy? Uh, and other uh, amazing ideas of like washing their hands, what are the activities uh, they are going to be doing at, uh, at, at school? And most importantly, if they have, you know, filters, air filters, or are you going to be using the windows? And each daycare will be different. And that's so important, why? because we need as parents to be involved with this. The same way that we are nervous on this part as parents, the same way as adults and teachers and everybody around schools having the same feeling that we're having right now. Are there school policies you would like to see implemented that may not already exist that could perhaps make a safer environment in schools for our children? The most important one is to actually having conversations with everybody, with the kids, with the parents, with the teachers. We are all on the same team and we want the same thing. We want our kids to be safe, to go back to school, to have an amazing social life. The development is important. Of course, you know, that part of education that it's also part and crucial for their lives. And that's the form that we need to be creating. And we as parents, we need to be the example for them to create that forums because, you know, this is the first time that we're doing this. There could be ups and downs, and most importantly, things can change. And we need to be ready to, for that and have amazing conversation with you know people from school boards, and most importantly, with the parents and our kiddos. How concerned are you about further coronavirus mutations? And what do you see as the best way to mitigate the risk of having to deal with yet another variant? Because in reality, that's the way viruses work. They typically mutate, and now we're seeing this with the Delta, and perhaps tomorrow there will be another variant. Andrea, I'm deadly afraid, and I don't use that word lightly. Right now, uh, the more people that actually have uh, infections, the most probability they have to actually have more variants. And right now, we have the Epsilon variant that it's actually something that we're checking, and other variants are happening there, like the Lambda one. Then it's a real effect. And right now, thanks God, here in the U.S., we have three amazing vaccines, Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson. They work amazingly well against COVID-19, the Delta variant. But one of those variants can escape all the tools that we have right now, and that will be devastating for our community. Well, there you have it. Some wonderful advice from Dr. Shapiro. Thank you for all the work and for coming on the show again. Wonderful conversation. Take care. Thank, thank you, Andrea. YouTube is suspending Republican Kentucky Senator Rand Paul's account for a week. The social media channel making that move after the senator posted false COVID claims in a video. In that video, Paul says, quote, most of the masks you get over the counter don't work. They don't prevent infection. In a statement, YouTube says, quote, we apply our policies consistently across the platform regardless of speaker or political views in response to the move, Paul tweeted that the suspension was a, quote, badge of honor.
And in other political news, the Texas House Speaker has signed civil arrest warrants for 52 House Democrats. In July, those Democrats fled to Washington, D.C. to prevent their Republican counterparts from having a quorum needed during a special session. A ruling Tuesday by Texas's high court temporarily blocked a state district judge's restraining order that prevented those lawmakers from being arrested. The exodus halted GOP-led efforts to pass an election overhaul bill that critics say would add restrictions and penalties for Texas voters. And in related news on Capitol Hill, Senate Republicans blocked the latest attempt by Democrats to advance a sweeping voting overhaul bill early today. Texas Senator Ted Cruz blocked Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's attempt to bring up the For the People Act. GOP lawmakers believe states should maintain control over their voting processes without federal overreach. Democrats, meanwhile, say federal intervention is actually necessary because many states are passing laws that restrict voting access. Schumer says his party has been discussing a compromise bill on voting rights that might be more likely to win Republican support. He vowed to take it up when the Senate returns to session next month. And Dominion Voting Systems has filed a $2 billion lawsuit in D.C. District Court Tuesday. The claim lists One America News Network, its president and CEO, and two on-air personalities as defendants. Dominion claims the conservative news network made false claims on air about its ballot tallying products that damaged its reputation. Dominion previously sued... Um, Lindell, along with Trump lawyers Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, the company says it's also suing ex-Overstock CEO Patrick Byrne for comments he made also claiming election fraud, and as, as well as conservative news network Newsmax for broadcasting some similar claims. And now to New York, where after months of sexual harassment allegations and calls for resignation, Andrew Cuomo announced he would step down as governor of the Empire State. But Cuomo is still defiant, denying all allegations that have been made against him. Given the circumstances, the best way I can help now is if I step aside and let government get back to governing. For the first time in more than a decade, New York will have a new leader. Before stepping down, Andrew Cuomo denying allegations in a New York attorney general investigation which found he sexually harassed nearly a dozen women. In my mind, I've never crossed the line with anyone. This is not to say that there are not 11 women who I truly offended. There are. And for that, I deeply, deeply apologize. Cuomo's resignation comes amid an intensifying impeachment probe in the New York State Legislature and resounding calls from top Democrats, from President Biden to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, to step down. The litany of allegations and accusations and, and were just piling up. So this was the right thing to do. I respect the governor's decision and... Uh, I, uh, I respect the decision he made. The resignation is effective in two weeks. That's when Cuomo will hand over the reins to Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul. A moderate Democrat will now become the state's first female governor on one of the nation's largest stages. In a short statement, she says, quote, I agree with Governor Cuomo's decision to step down. 
It is the right thing to do and in the best interest of New Yorkers. I am prepared to lead as New York State's 57th governor. The Albany County New York Sheriff says the governor's announcement of resignation will have no effect on the investigation which is ongoing, saying they still have a complaint and an allegation of criminal conduct. And now to Washington, where after months of stalemate over an infrastructure deal, the Biden administration is now seeing some momentum following the passage of a trillion-dollar package passed the Senate over the weekend. Edwin Piti joins us live from Washington, D.C. to talk about where we go from here. Edwin. Andrea, just hours after the White House celebrated the approval of the infrastructure bill in the Senate, senators approved a $3.5 trillion budget resolution. This doesn't mean that the House can vote on it immediately. The Senate just passed a blueprint that will allow them to start working on the text of the bill inside the committees. But it will take time because senators are now on recess. The 50 to 49 party line vote came after a lengthy series of amendments vote known as Voterama. It also approved, if also approved by the democratically controlled House, the budget resolution will open the door for Democrats to use a process called budget reconciliation for legislation on health care, the climate crisis, immigration and more. But again, that could take months. Take a listen. It'll cut taxes lower costs for the American people, create good-paying jobs, invest in our future while tackling the climate change crisis. It's big, it's bold, it's strong. And it'll be paid for by making our tax code more progressive and more fair without raising taxes on working families and small businesses, by asking corporations and the wealthy to pay their share. It boils the average American's blood when they see multi-billionaires paying virtually no taxes. Yesterday was a big win for the White House. The Senate passed a sweeping $1.2 trillion package with bipartisan support. But the focus remains on how quickly senators will be able to agree on the terms of the spending bill and if Democrats will opt to go with the reconciliation process that would effectively cut the votes needed to pass the bill from 60 to 51. According to President Biden, this is a game changer for the nations. This is what he had to say. America, America, this is how we truly build back better. This bill is going to put people to work, modernizing our roads and our highways and our bridges so commuters and truckers don't lose time in traffic, saving billions of dollars nationally. An official reconciliation plan to unlock that ability would take several weeks and it would be away. Now, Democrats plan to use it to establish universal pre-K for three and four years old, make community college free for two years, and add new dental and vision benefits to Medicare, also invest on affordable housing, and establish a civilian climate corps. But the House is slated to return from recess on August 23rd and will consider the budget resolution then. Live in Washington, back to you, Andrea. Thank you, Edwin. Clearly, this process continues for now. And joining us now to analyze these next steps is Charles Zeldin. He's a political science professor at Nova Southeastern University. Welcome back to you, News, Professor. Glad to be here. The Biden administration is certainly pleased after clearing the first hurdle for this massive infrastructure bill. But what pitfalls do you see as the measure makes its way to the House? 
Well, the biggest pitfall is that it's only part of what the Democrats want. And the question is going to be, how willing is the House to uh, vote on this bill, this hard uh, uh, infrastructure bill, when there's so much more that they want to see done through the next bill, the soft infrastructure bill that may have to go through reconciliation. Uh, if they wait too long, they may not be able to get this passed. So it's, it's, it's a, it's, it, there's a tension between what we want and what we're going to get if you're the Democrats. Many progressives wanted more out of this bipartisan bill. The original plan saw money for funding, clean energy tax credits, and also public housing funding, but much of that has been stripped away. Is there a real opportunity here for progressives to influence the final bill? And is there a downside for progressive Democrats trying to hold the bipartisan bill hostage over increased social spending? Yes, there is a very big opportunity for the progressives to say, okay, we got what the moderates want, now let's get what we want. Um, and to do so by basically arguing that they won't vote for the hard infrastructure bill, the one that was just passed in the, in the Senate yesterday, and, and, and they won't vote on it until the next bill has been voted on by the Senate, whatever that bill will entail. Uh, the question will be how much are they willing to accept of what the Senate is willing to give them. And the downside is, is if you wait too long, people start blaming you for uh, government not working. And that's not good for the Democrats. Their whole sales pitch is government can make things better. Well, to do that, they actually have to have government do stuff. And so they're, they're facing a dilemma between what they want and what they can get out of the Senate. And, uh, you know, the longer they wait, the more they can get. But if they wait too long, they might get nothing. And so that's the dilemma they face. Kind of risky. To, Does the bipartisan yeah. vote in the Senate suggest that President Biden might be moving in the right direction when it comes to unlocking congressional gridlock that has marked D.C. for years, like you said? Or do you see the bipartisan infrastructure vote as an anomaly? I wouldn't call it an anomaly. It was definitely a victory uh, by the president and his ability to work within the Senate to get the Senate to act. But to assume that this is the way it's going to be with everything else is 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 foolish. Um, basically, what we have here is is a bill in which Republicans see is very popular. They believe that they can pitch it as our victory as much as the president's victory. And they're worried that if they keep on saying no, that that might put enough pressure on the Democrats to do away with the filibuster. So there were a lot of moving parts that brought the Republicans to the table on this particular bill. And, and it was definitely a victory, and it is a model of how things could be done to get both sides working together. But to expect this to be the new norm, I think, is, is expecting too much out of Congress. Thank you so much, Professor Charles Zeldin of Nova Southeastern University. And in late breaking news, a federal judge has ruled that former President Trump's accountants must turn over two years worth of his tax and financial records to a House committee investigating whether Trump and his businesses profited from his service in the White House. 
That judge approved a House Oversight and Government Reform Committee subpoena for Trump's records covering 2017 and 2018, but turned down most of the panel's requests for similar information dating back to 2011. The decision is likely to be appealed by Trump's lawyers and could also be challenged by the House panel. A disturbance swirling in the Caribbean became Tropical Storm Fred late Tuesday and was just south of Puerto Rico this morning, heading for the Dominican Republic, Haiti and the Bahamas. Forecasters warned that its heavy rains could cause dangerous flooding and mudslides. Fred, the sixth named storm of the Atlantic hurricane season, could intensify once it reaches the waters south of Florida or the eastern Gulf of Mexico by this weekend. At the moment, the South Florida region is inside the cone of concern for that storm. And out west, the largest active wildfire in the nation just keeps on growing. California fire officials said the Dixie Fire has spread to nearly 488,000 acres. And that's nearly 5,000 acres increase from a Monday night. Officials say the blaze has destroyed roughly 900 structures and it's only about 25% contained. Governor Gavin Newsom has declared a state of emergency for the northern California counties affected by this fire. Forecasters say thunderstorms are possible later this week, which could help crews make some progress on the fire. Meanwhile, more severe weather in the Midwest. Thousands of people lost electricity as storms moved through southern Wisconsin late Tuesday afternoon. Residents throughout the area reporting some downed trees and flooding as seen in this video. And check out this swift water rescue near Tucson, Arizona on Tuesday after a powerful monsoon storm hit the area. An emergency crew rescued a mother, grandmother and child from a truck stuck in the mud. Another vehicle also got stuck, but the one person in it was able to get out on their own. Luckily, there were no reports of injuries. Mexico and the United States making some progress on Tuesday after talks that focused on stemming illegal immigration and reopening their shared border. Mexican Foreign Minister Marcelo Ebrard met in Mexico City with U.S. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, and the National Security Council Senior Director for the Western Hemisphere, Juan González. On Monday, Vice President Kamala Harris told Mexico's president that the U.S. will donate millions of COVID-19 vaccines to their country. The vaccines are expected to arrive in Mexico before the end of the month. Meanwhile, in South Texas, migrants continue to make their way to the border and at times across it. As Jorge Hernandez explains, the increase of those arriving shows no signs of letting up. The massive influx of migrants into South Texas continues unabated, and there are days when there are simply too many. Two nights ago, in the early morning, there were so many arriving that it seemed like there was no end. <laughs> Sometimes we make these decisions because of the situation in our country. Evan Mejia was among the almost 500 migrants who arrived in La Jolla, Texas, two nights ago in a span of four hours. He came with a six-month-old baby, choking up with tears. He told us that he sacrificed everything for his son. The babies are not to blame for anything, and this is for their future. Each migrant carries a heartbreaking story. Apart from the ordeal they say they have lived through to get to this place. I have come begging, believe me, to be in this place. We haven't eaten since 11 o'clock, yes. 
The night was advancing and the migrants did not stop arriving. Among those who were resting, we found this woman who was about to give birth. About 10 days according to the ultrasound. And among the unaccompanied children, we met this eight-year-old Guatemalan boy who was crying inconsolably. Who do you miss? My daddy and my mommy. In Guatemala. The child was traveling to Atlanta where his grandmother and an aunt lived, but he was terrified. I'm scared. Reported by Pedro Ultreras in La Jolla, Texas, this is Jorge Hernandez, U News. Major updates to immigration policy and procedures coming thanks to new cooperation between federal agencies acting on behalf of the White House. Ana de Mendoza explains the changes that lie ahead. A new agreement between the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services and the Social Security Administration allows those applying for permanent U.S. residency to complete only one process instead of two to also get a Social Security card. There is no doubt that now it will be faster to get that Social Security card when you are applying for permanent residency. From now on, the I-485 form, which is the application for U.S. permanent residency or adjustment of status, will also include additional questions to simultaneously apply for a Social Security number. Now the U.S. government will send you the Social Security card at the same time it sends you the work permit. Previously, applicants after receiving a work permit had to go to the Social Security offices in person. And according to attorney Alex Galvez, during the pandemic, those offices were closed and people had to send their original permanent resident card to ask for a social security number. The problem is that many green cards were lost, but now the bureaucracy and wasted time are things of the past. Now everything will come by mail. Now when the Office of Citizenship and Immigration Services approves the application for permanent residency, it automatically sends the information to the Social Security Administration so that they can issue a card to the applicant. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. That would essentially put an end to the longest war in U.S. history. This is the interior of a stash house that we found in this right along today. State authorities recommend avoiding them at night. You News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You News on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. In Mexico City, a very special business is serving as a refuge and safe haven for those in the LGBTQ community. Paulina Gomez explains from the Mexican capital. Given the financial crisis in Mexico due to the pandemic, for many, putting food on the table has become increasingly difficult, but a community kitchen opened its doors to help members of the LGBT community in Mexico City who lost their jobs. Bienvenides. Obed Yassi is one of the people who has been able to enjoy this safe space. We feel valued and visible in this space. It gives us an opportunity to come here and to be healthy, to form a routine and to socialize with people we haven't been able to socialize with. When the pandemic stroke, Manos Amigues or Helpful Hands founder Brent Alberghini started this project in his apartment as a food bank to support vulnerable people like those from the LGBT community hundreds got help. We formed uh, this association uh, in, because to fight discrimination and also to just have a place where people could go. That's 
For 15 pesos, roughly 75 cents, people can enjoy a hot meal with water and tortillas. Everything is prepared by friendly hands that welcome everyone. There are men in the LGBT community who live in very bad conditions, and this is a way to give them a hand, which is necessary during pandemic times. Many people don't have an income, and so to have a community kitchen has saved many people. Although the LGBT community in Mexico has found the spaces of acceptance, they still face quite a bit of discrimination. Founders of this community kitchen are also trying to put together a shelter for LGBT people and at the same time provide a place for free STD testing. This is something that we want to do in, in, to build infrastructure that doesn't exist. Mexico City is the biggest city in the Western Hemisphere and it doesn't have an LGBT center. Manos Amigas is also a cultural center that hosts a fun drag show. Paulina Gomez Bulchiner in Mexico City, U News. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.